It's been interesting looking at these last few psalms about the kind of the theme seems to be the people have sinned, what should their response to God be uh, in connection with uh, potentially the exile. Um, So, for example, we saw in Psalm 79, the nations have invaded your inheritance. And then in Psalm 80, verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? Um, And then now here in Psalm 81, it starts out with kind of a positive note of singing praise to God. And then it kind of concludes with a verse 11 and following, but my people did not listen to my voice. And so there's this kind of a strong parallel, I think, to what we see in the Gospels where Jesus looks and has compassion on the very people who are rejecting his message. Same uh, demonstration of God's character that we see here. So, uh, as we look at this together, we'll start out with the idea of uh, poetic devices or just figures of speech, symbolic language, things that maybe need explained from the text here, maybe starting in verse 1 where it says, God, our strength. What does that mean, God, our strength? Okay, yeah, so God is the source of our strength. All right, what else? What else is kind of in view with that phrase? Norma? Okay, yeah, God's strength is the answer for our weakness. All right, good. Um, So there's a a degree of praising God in connection with that strength. Um, What about this phrase? Jonathan, go ahead. Okay, yeah, there's an element of protection. We could even say deliverance. We see that a little bit later in the psalm. Uh, What about this phrase, God of Jacob? What's significant about him being the God of Jacob? Okay, so Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes. Good. Okay, yeah, I think there's a definite link to the promises. I think this is potentially a a kind of a shorthand. Instead of saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's just using the last in that that grouping of three to sum up, here is the one who's made promises to the patriarchs and emphasizing God's faithfulness in contrast to the fickle and unfaithful nature of the people. We'll get more into that in a little bit. Uh, When it says in verse 2, raise a song, what's that? I mean, it's not like raising a barn, but when it says raise a song, what's the idea? Jim? Celebrate. Okay, celebrate. Someone said? Praise. Okay, yeah. So uh, it's kind of parallel to that phrase where we'd say lift up your voice. You can't really lift up your voice. It's not like a box, but it is a, a, a turning of praise toward God, right? Uh, we see that in verse 2. Uh, verse 5, we talk, uh, it says that you have... Um, Let's see, is it verse, yeah, verse 5, sorry, I was looking at Psalm 80 and I was confused. Uh, A testimony in Joseph. What's Joseph? Does it just mean Joseph or is Joseph representative of something else, potentially? Well, I mean, there... We talk about the life of Joseph, but I don't think it's the life of Joseph here. I think there is a, a um, let's back up for a second. 
when they are in the land of Egypt, who was the primary character who was sort of their representative or leader, if you will? Joseph, right? And so when it says in verse 5, when God went throughout the land of Egypt, I heard a language that I did not know, and then starts talking about their deliverance. When he says, I establish a testimony in Joseph, what is Joseph representative of? Well, I don't think it's so much a character quality. What people group does he, is he referring to when he says Joseph? Yeah, all of Israel, right? So this would be a kind of symbolism where that one name, Joseph, is sort of standing for the entirety of the people whom God then delivers. At least, I think that's what's going on there, but um, certainly something we could discuss a little bit more. Yes. So the God of Jacob, the God who's faithful, is giving us this, this testimony, law, etc., to the descendants of Joseph and the, and the entirety of Israel. Um, oh, in verse 6, when it says, I relieved his shoulder of the burden, what does that mean? What's sort of the picture there? Yeah, so deliverance from slavery. It's not literally he had a sore shoulder and so I gave him relief in some way. It's they're bearing heavy things as slaves for the Egyptians and God delivered them, right? Uh, verse 7 is a really interesting picture. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. Where is the hiding place of thunder? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think we would say something along the lines of God is answering them from the skies, from the heavens, right? Uh, in what way? He provides um, the law and the testimony, for one. Um, but he also provides things like manna from heaven, right? So it's hard to know precisely which of those things is in view. Probably a closer link to the idea of what you were talking about, Mount Sinai and God thundering as he answers the people what we looked at in Exodus quite a while back. Uh, verse 10, where it says, open your mouth wide. What's that um, talking about there? What does he mean, open your mouth wide and I will fill it? Yeah, probably general provision, not just you need one bite of food, right? It's uh, general provision, blessing, that kind of thing. Um, verse 11, where it says, they did not listen to my voice. What does that mean? didn't pay attention or he does instruction just one if we were to put it in one simple word they disobeyed right okay so the israelites did not obey and so verse 11 when he says he gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart what what does that mean okay uh but what specifically is god doing Yeah, right? Uh, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but I think we tend to think that God has to actively do something to cause sinners to face judgment, but there is a very real sense in which all he has to do is stop doing things, and then they sort of self-destruct. Mike? Is it possible that when he says, I open your mouth wide and I will fill it, that he's talking about he can fill their mouth with the words he wants them to say? That's an interesting question. Um, 
Let's look at verse 16, and I'm, I'm leaning toward the parallelism being potentially no, but that is an interesting point that I hadn't thought about that's worth considering. Um, so if we look at verse 13, uh, when he says that they would walk in his ways, he's not talking about a literal path. What does he mean by that? Yeah, yeah, li living according to the law, okay? And then verse 16, he says, I would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. So if the parallel is between 10 and 16, then it's talking more like food provision. If the parallel is with verse 13 and um, verse 4, then yeah, I think that's a fair point, Mike. And so that's, that's something that we'd have to think about. Is, is the parallel filling your mouth what God did for Moses, giving him the words to speak, the words of the law, and so forth? Or is it more God's general provision for them? And I don't, I think the tension is the two things are not as far removed from each other as we might think, because the extent to which they were aware of and followed the law and taught it to others was also the extent to which God blessed them with things like food and children and all that kind of thing. So, Again, there's probably a closer link there than I think we acknowledge because we see those as very distant things. All right. Yeah. Um, and I did not do this, but we might need to check whether that's a plural or a singular because if it's a singular, it might be more directed toward a leader of the people like Moses, and if it's a plural, it's probably more generally toward the people. So, right, yeah. So, then we go to what are some repeated thoughts here? Repeated thoughts or ideas. Okay, what's that? Yeah, so there's a contrast between 8 and 11 here. They did not hear. Okay, good. What else? What other repeated ideas do we see? Yeah, so we could say verse 8, 9, 11, 12, and 13. There's sort of this idea of, of I want you to listen they didn't listen, they didn't obey, they worshiped false gods, all those sorts of things, right? Um, so that whole grouping of things. There's this idea, potentially a provision, verses 10 and 16. Um, there's also these interesting clusters of activities of the people and activities of God. So verses 1, 2, and 3, what's the activity of the people? Praise, in a variety of ways, right? Sing, shout, raise a song, strike the timbrel, the lyre, the harp, the trumpet, and uh, all those things, right? And then in verses 6 through 8, there's a cluster of descriptions of what God does. If we were to sum those up, what would it be? What does God do for Jim? Rescues, yeah, so that's what I'm looking there, 6 through 8, yeah. So he rescues them, so then there's this expectation they're going to follow after him, right? Uh, what we were just talking about, but they don't in verses 8 through 13, right? Um, 
there is also this idea, I think, of who God is, God of Jacob, God of God our strength, I am the Lord your God, in 1, 4, and 10, just these different sort of names and aspects of who God is, so that he is a God who is powerful, that he is a God who is faithful, that he is a God who is personal. When he says, I am the Lord, that's the name that he reveals himself to the Israelites with. Okay. Uh, if we're going to say what's the structure, seems to be a structure of 1 through 5, uh, and then 6 through 10, and then 11 through 16. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. When we talk about what type of psalm this is, what type of psalm it is, what are some possibilities? If I were to say things like lament, song of trust, praise him, uh, royal or covenantal psalm, uh, wisdom psalm. Uh-huh. Yeah, so again, it's kind of like, what's the big thing? Because there's features of a lot of these in, in the other ones, but it doesn't really seem to be a lament, because lament is generally us directed toward God, I don't want to say bemoaning, but struggling with the nature of the circumstances, right? And the only sorrow in this seems to be directed from who? From God toward people, so it's kind of opposite of a lament. It's kind of like an invitation for them to trust God. It is... But what is it? What does it start out with? Praise. Starts out with a call to praise, right? So even though, so if we were to say a praise hymn, the typical pattern is that there's a call to praise, then there's praise to God because of certain things that He's done. That's where it seems to follow the pattern. But then it kind of breaks from the pattern in terms of the resolution because it leaves it open ended because they're not really doing what you would expect them to do in light of the call to praise and God's help and God's deliverance. And so the fact that it doesn't follow the pattern exactly doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a praise hymn. It just means that these are general descriptions. So uh, some of the common features you might see in a praise hymn would be things like glory, majesty, splendor, God's name, shout and sing, let us praise, fear God or the Lord, blessed. We see some of those things, right? I think the next runner-up, if you will, would be the song of trust, in that there is trusting God's help when confronted by enemies. You might see words like refuge, mountain, leads, delivers. Here's the issue with seeing it as a song of trust, though, in my mind. The song of trust is typically something where the psalmist is actually expressing the trust, whereas here it seems to be in view a people who are not expressing the trust to God. And sort of this, not veiled, but implied admonition, you should trust God. So I still think if we're going to say which one does it fit the best, and I think we'd probably say it's a praise hymn. Uh, even though it breaks the pattern a little bit at the end. Yeah, so there's royal or covenantal psalms. So like Psalm 78 is very historical, but it points out God's covenant. It points to David as king. There's some overtones of Jesus who is to come. So like Psalm 2, the, the son, he sits in heaven, he puts his son on the throne, he laughs at the wicked. That one points, I think, to Jesus, at least first to the royal king and then anticipates Jesus reigning. So that, those are some of the ones I'd have in mind, like Psalm 2, Psalm 78. Um, yeah. And then a wisdom... Yeah, I don't think that's the main emphasis, right? Because Psalm 78 ends in God, he appointed David to shepherd the people, and he shepherded them skillfully, and, and there's just sort of this anticipation of Jesus, and, and I just think we don't see that in the same way here. But then even like a wisdom psalm would be Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk and all that sort of thing. And there's an extent to which the entirety of psalms is a wisdom book. So we would expect to see features of wisdom, but not every psalm in the book we would probably call a formal wisdom psalm. So 
Again, these are categories that people have, I think, rightly invented to helpfully say, what are some common features? Which psalms are most similar? But there's also structure and organization within the book itself, such that the last three that we've looked at sort of are set at the same time, have the same sort of, I don't know if you say melancholy tone, but just uh, things are not as they should be, and here's the Israelites, and has God forgotten us, and what's he going to do, and are the people ever going to repent, like all those sorts of ideas. So, um, Truths about God. First one in the first verse, what is the truth about God? God is strong, okay? God's strong, God's powerful, he's able to do what he said. Uh, what is, if there's a call to praise, what does that imply about God? God's worthy of praise for at least two reasons. What did God give the Israelites first of all? Paul makes a big deal about this. You have this, the Gentiles don't have it. The covenant, the law, the testament, all of this revelation and structure and all those things that God gave to them. And then the second thing is not just what he gave them, but what he did for them. And so this idea of deliverance, he, he's... He's I'd say he's worthy of praise for his testimonies and for his triumphs, right? Um, what about the character of God? There's this implication, not even implication, it's stated, you didn't do what you were supposed to. What does that sort of then point us to about God? True, but the fact that they're still around for the psalmist to make these observations is a testimony to God's what? His um, mercy, yeah. yeah. God's justice is the fact that he gives them over, right? But I think the main emphasis here is God's compassion in that he's pleading with a people who are stubborn over and over instead of saying you're done, that's it, right? Um, so, I mean, it's important for us to notice that. All right, what are some truths about us? If there's a call to praise, what does that then say to us? There's a little bit of an ought. We need to praise God, right? We're obligated to praise God. Not in a, man, I've got to do this again, but in a, he's worthy of it, right? Um, there is also in that middle part, sort of the flip side of if God is worthy to be praised because of his testimonies and his triumphs, there is a truth that God delivers people, right? Um, and then what's sort of this idea in verse 11 and 12 and 13? Are there any parallels between the people of Israel and our own experience here? What were the people, if we're going to sum them up in one word? Sinners disobedient, stubborn, all those, you know, sort of that grouping of ideas. So if they were stubborn, what might we expect about us? We can be stubborn too. We can be sinful. We need to repent, right? So I think these are some of the, the features that we see here. So um, I'm going to try to walk us through and kind of bring all these ideas together now. So as we look at Psalm 81, we have this strange intersection of people who don't deserve God's mercy and faithfulness experiencing it and being called to praise him, even though it seems like at the moment that this psalm is written, their hearts aren't in it and they're not going to. Which then raises interesting questions about the intent of a psalm like this. Is the goal really to get people to praise God or is the goal to get people to repent 
I think the answer is yes, but in this order. They need to repent so that they're in a place where they will praise God. So, that's why I put here, unfaithful people must turn to and praise their powerful, faithful God. So, what does this then look like? I think the first idea we see here in verses 1 through 5 is that we should praise God according to His testimony and for His strong deliverance. So, according to His testimony and for His strong deliverance. Um, for His strength, specifically, and then we'll get into the deliverance in 6 through 10. There is a call to praise God. It says, sing for joy, right? So, I think one of the... How do I put this? We tend to get very concerned in our circles about the excesses of people in other denominations or other groups, right? So clearly there is a problem when people are flailing around on the floor or laughing hysterically or some of these sorts of things, right? Clearly that there's something that doesn't line up with the idea of order that we see in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 in terms of regulation of spiritual gifts. So aside from the question of whether spiritual gifts are for today or not, if they are for today, it can only be if there is a following of the regulations that are laid out for the church by Paul in 1 Corinthians and in other places. And so when we see people doing things that are not the sort of tongues that are described in the Bible, that are in no way organized or orderly or honoring to God, but completely chaotic, I think we're right to say something's wrong with this, we shouldn't pursue it. Here's my, my fear or my concern. We see the excesses over here, and we come way over here and we say, all right, worship to God is just going to be very solemn and there's going to be no joy in it because if we have any joy, we're going to end up way over there. And the reality is there's a lot of steps between just a somber stodginess about worship and a completely chaotic, unregulated mess, right? And so when it says, sing for joy to God our strength, shout joyfully to the God of Jacob, there should be joy when we sing to God. Amen. So, by way of application, if we're not thinking about the words when we sing to God, it's not likely that we're going to have joy because joy is sort of a heart response to great truth. If we don't comprehend the great truth, there's not going to be much of an emotional response to it. There also, I think, has to be an element not of manufacturing it, but of training our hearts to have a right response because we've actually taken the time to meditate on the truth. So uh, if, we, if we think about the fact that God answered you in the hiding place of thunder, He delivered you, He proved you at the waters of Meribah, it takes a little bit of thinking to get from that to, yes, I should praise God. And we didn't personally experience those things, but we see them in the Bible. God tests them. Are they going to trust me when they don't have what they need? God reveals himself in mighty power on Mount Sinai with a thundering voice and all the people say, Moses, you go up there because God's too great for us to approach closely. God, they called out in trouble. They're trapped by the Red Sea and God parts the waters, sends the army through, drowns them all and delivers them from their enemies. If those truths don't stir our soul, there's something wrong with us, right? But if we don't ever think about them and then we come to sing about stuff like that, it's just going to be sort of a, yeah, I know these words, and I've said it before, and there's an emptiness. There's not a joy or a heartfelt nature to the sort of worship that we're offering to God. 
Let's take it a step further. There are people who will make the argument that because this is the Old Testament, they did instruments. We don't see any instruments mentioned in the New Testament. Therefore, we shouldn't have any instruments in the church. Our churches have historically not landed there like some other denominations, the people I went to school with or whatever, who like no instruments in church, okay, uh, in high school. Um, but we've tended to be a lot closer to that than we might admit. Only the piano. Only the organ. And I think we forget how controversial even those two things were in their day. But notice the instruments that are described here. Raise a song, strike the timbrel, the sweet-sounding lyre with the harp, blowing the trumpet at the new moon at the full moon on our feast day. So there is, in our day it would be a brass instrument, in their day it was probably, you know, bone or horn or something like that. Uh, But there is some sort of instrument like a trumpet. There is a stringed instrument, and there is a a keeping time, percussion, keeping the beat kind of instrument. Now, I'm not trying to start a fight about this, but I just am pointing this out to say, when we see all of those things in connection with worship, if our first thought is, ah, I don't like this, we've got to explain it away somehow, I think we need to say, at the very least, we are to praise God with the entirety of what's going on in our opportunities for worship, right? Um, And I think it should at least cause us to consider the possibility, again, I'm not arguing for us having a, a worship team up front that's solely focused on performance. That's not at all what I'm saying. I want you to understand that. But if our immediate reaction is to say, well, so-and-so plays the guitar, but we've traditionally never had anybody play the guitar, so that's absolutely a no-go for our church. If God were to bring someone in our church who is gifted in some instrument that's not one that's been used in our service before, at the very least, I think we should be open to the possibility of it being used for special music. Now, again, we're not talking about stupid things, like we're not going to have somebody come up and play the kazoo, We're not going to have somebody uh, do, like, just a drum solo just because. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about, though, is that there is, God has gifted different people to use different instruments, whether that be voice or stringed instruments or all these other sorts of things, to praise Him. And we tend to get hung up on the specifics of what we think is or isn't appropriate in the service and less on the focus of, heartfelt praise to God. Again, it needs to be regulated. We do need to think about all the associated issues, right? So if we're going to play the guitar, we don't need to play it like the musicians like this, right? If we're going to sing, there is at the very least a call to sing in a way that's clear and understandable and calls people to worship that doesn't, it's not about the performer, it's not immodest, it's not all of those sorts of things. Obviously, right? Hopefully that should be obvious to us. But there is a well-rounded, heartfelt expression of praise to God. And then it is linked to the fact that God has called his people to praise him. So there's a theological reason for doing it. It's not just let's do it just because we like it, we want to do it, it makes us feel happy. It's we do it because God has called his people to worship. In the Old Testament, God appointed for them feast days. God appointed for them uh, 
particular points at which they would gather in their calendar to worship God as an entire congregation. We have opportunity to do that far more regularly than I think we realize the Israelites did. The Israelites would have been three times a year, maybe a handful of others. We do it every week. We have so much more opportunity to praise God as a gathered assembly. And I think we also have similar commands. So Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, uh, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts to the Lord, with thankfulness pouring out our hearts before Him. We have opportunity to do these things and similar theological reasons to do so. So the first part of all this is this praise to God with an attitude of joy, with a, an expression of voice and instrument and all these things in praise to Him, driven by a theological reason. God has called us to praise Him, right? So that's the first thing that we see here. Praise God according to His testimony, because of His strength, and in all these ways. But then there's also a second call in the middle section to pay attention to God's help and God's admonition. So God's help, think about all the mighty works of God that the Israelites experienced. I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You called in trouble and I rescued you. So they're carrying loads for the Egyptians. They're gathering grain and straw and all these things for the Egyptians. They're doing all this hard labor. God said, no, I'm going to free you. Pharaoh said, no, some of you can go. Just the women can go, just the children can go. You can all go, but not your livestock. And God says, no, by the time you go, you're going to be pushing us out of the land. And that's exactly what he does. All the men, all the women, all the children, all the animals, half the wealth of Egypt, if not more, right? God sends them out with all these things. He helps them, right? And he doesn't stop helping them when he delivers them from slavery, but when they're about to be defeated, verse 7, he rescues them. When he gives them the law, he speaks to them and reveals himself. When they don't feel like they have what they need, he shows himself powerful again. Despite their complaints, despite their disobedience, he shows himself to be a faithful God. But then there's also this aspect of the admonition. If you have received this evidence of God's power in the mighty works that he's done, then what are you going to do with it? You need to listen to him. You need to pay attention to him. You need to follow him. What does that look like? Verse 9, Let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. This should seem obvious, but it wasn't obvious for the Israelites. If there's a true God who has delivered you, don't go running after all the false gods. Illustration. If you have a relationship with your spouse, your husband or your wife, why would you run after all these people over here? That's the person you have a relationship, which again goes into all the things in the Old Testament about spiritual adultery because God basically says when you run off with these false gods, sometimes you commit actual immorality, but at the very least you're being spiritually unfaithful because you have a relationship with me, not all of them. I've proved myself over and over and over again, and you keep running over there to that person that you're basically having a one-night stand with and abandoning me for, and I'm your God. Why would you go over there? So then he comes to verse 10. I'm your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. He says to David, David, why'd you try to figure and scheme all these things on your own? If you needed more, I would have given you more and abundantly. Israelites, why did you go to the Philistines or the Egyptians or whoever to try to get help and the things that you thought you needed? If you had just followed me and gone back to what it talks about the law and the testimony in verses 4 and 5, if you had just paid attention to those things, 
I would have blessed you. Open the floodgates of heaven, uh, the windows of heaven, and, and poured out blessing on you. That's what it talks about in Deuteronomy. If you follow me, you'll have children, you'll have crops, you'll have wealth, you'll have everything you can think of that you could need. But what was their response? And that brings us to the third thing. There's a need to repent because of God's compassion, despite our stubborn pride. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. Over and over and over again, God said through the prophets, through Moses, through all these leaders, through kings who followed him faithfully, here's what it means to follow after me. Book of Judges, they do it for a few years, and then they go right back to the idolatry they had before. Saul is king, followed God briefly, and then went his own way. David as king, followed him more faithfully throughout the reign of David. Solomon, things split apart, and from then on, the northern kingdom pretty much followed idolatry. The southern kingdom had little glimmers of hope, but a lot of idolatry mixed in too, right? And so over and over again, the people of Israel did not listen to God's voice. God's voice saying, look at all that I have done for you. Stop running over there. So what does God eventually do? I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. I don't know who said this, and I'm probably not quoting it accurately, but something along the lines of the most terrifying thing is when you know that you are doing wrong and there is nothing preventing you from doing it. When God abandons you to do exactly what you want to do and the thing that you want to do is sin and he doesn't stop you, you should not say, yay, I'm getting away from it, getting away with it. You should say, I'm in trouble because if God's letting me go my own way, it either means what it talks about in Romans 1, this downward spiral that I'm near the bottom of it, or that I have so seared my conscience and dulled my hearing and hardened my heart to hear God's word that he's giving me glimpses of opportunities to repent. I don't even see him anymore. So there's strong parallels, I think, with Romans 1 and this downward spiral of God giving them over to their evil hearts to do whatever they want to do. If you feel like you're doing whatever you want to do and you know what you're doing is wrong and nothing is stopping you, that should bring fear to your soul. And a lot of times what we do is foolishly with the Israelites rejoice and say, hey, I'm getting away with it. Or 2 Peter 3, Where's God? Where's the promise of His coming? He's forgotten about all this stuff. God's compassion is used by the wicked as an excuse to justify their sinfulness. God's compassion should be the thing that compels us to repent and say, I've failed miserably and horribly and awfully, but, verse 10 Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Verse 14, I would quickly subdue their enemies. Those who hate the Lord would do feigned obedience to Him and they would be punished forever. But I would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock. The attitude that we see in verses 14 through 16, even verse 13, is basically, yes, you didn't listen, verse 11. Yes, you're experiencing judgment, verse 12. But like the prodigal son, if you come home... I will take you in. So, 
what then does that mean for us? Well, I think what it means for us is we need to recognize that by and large we tend to be unfaithful people, which means there's a lot of these points at which we need to be saying, okay, I'm going to praise God. Wait, I can't praise God right now. I've got to deal with some sin first, which interestingly is what Jesus said, right? Hey, you come to worship at the temple, and you remember that you had a big fight with your neighbor, your brother-in-law, this other person that you know, your fellow Israelite. Don't say, I'm coming to God in worship. God's going to receive my worship. No, go deal with that sin before you come to God in worship because God cares less about your sacrifice than he does about you having a right relationship with him and other people. So we need to be aware of our need to repent. And then having repented, we need to be aware of our obligation to praise God. Praise Him for all the wonderful things that He's done. Praise Him, in fact, for what's described at the end of the chapter, His compassion, His mercy, all these sorts of things. Unfaithful people must turn to and praise their powerful, faithful God. All right, let's go now to our time of prayer.